So our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 5, really just verse 4, but I want to say a few things to introduce it before I read it. If you're with us last week, you might remember I ended the sermon with an illustration to try to help us understand the kingdom of heaven. To understand what Matthew is talking about, you have to understand this concept of the kingdom of heaven, and I often find that difficult. I find it difficult to grasp for myself, and I, I found it difficult to convey it very well. And so I actually want to begin with another illustration to help us understand the kingdom of heaven. And it'll help us to understand verse 4 of Matthew chapter 5. All right, so let's get our imaginations going, get it cranked up. So in this case, imagine that the United States of America is what Israel was. Okay, so imagine that the United States of America is God's chosen nation among all the other nations. Imagine that God had chosen our nation as his nation, and he is uniquely identified with the United States of America. And he's not uniquely identified with any other nation in the world. We are his special nation. He's chosen us. He's provided for us. He has formed us from nothing. He is with us. But... We have rebelled against him. And as such, we are suffering the consequences of that rebellion. And so, in order to discipline us as God's special nation, he has allowed China to invade and conquer the United States of America. And so, there's Chinese soldiers everywhere. They are in charge. They are occupying our country, God's special country, They're taxing us heavily in order to keep their government running, keep their expansion going, and they are in control. Now, you can imagine what a dark time that would be as God's special country, God's special nation. Now, imagine also that God promised that it's not always going to be this way. This is a temporary discipline. This is a temporary consequence for your rebellion against God. But one day, a leader is going to emerge. And this leader is going to introduce a new era of God's nation. And so it's going to be completely restored, but beyond its former glory, it's going to be restored in such a way that it is eternal. It is never-ending, and many, many people are going to be added to it. Many people, even from around the world, are going to be added to this nation under this new leader. And so imagine it's been generations, and we've been under this, this Chinese uh, oppression for generations waiting, waiting, waiting for this leader to emerge who's going to lead us into this new era as a nation. There would be a sense of darkness, a shadow over us as a nation for all these years. There would be a sense of our spiritual need because we remember the reason it's like this is because of our national rebellion against our God. There would be a sense of mourning over our national sin and the consequences that we're living under day by day. There would be a sense of smallness and humiliation at our defeat, at our inability, our helplessness to to be our own sovereign nation under God again. There would be a, a hunger for things to be made right. There would be a deep temptation also for bitterness and hatred and the desire for revenge against those who are occupying our country. And in the midst of all this, a figure does appear, and he seems to embody everything that God promised this new leader would, would be. 
And so word starts to spread, and huge crowds are starting to flock to see him and hear him, and he's performing miracles, and he's, he's announcing it's time for the nation, it's time for the kingdom. It's time for all this to be over and the new, the kingdom to be established. And so you go to hear him. He's speaking nearby, and so you go to join the crowd to listen to what he's got to say about what's next for this kingdom to get started and to get going. What's next for God to again reclaim his special nation, his special country, his special people, and to reestablish it. And you listen in, and you hear him teach what Jesus teaches here in Matthew chapter 5. And he starts with what's known as the Beatitudes. Now, I want to read this, but imagine you're hearing it in that context. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. This new leader teaches, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is this new kingdom that you've been waiting for. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the reason I took you through that little thought experiment is we tend to approach Scripture from an individualistic and therapeutic vantage point. We tend to approach the Bible as me, as an individual. I'm looking for therapy for how I'm feeling and what I'm dealing with. But to really understand Jesus' teaching, you have to approach it from a more national perspective. He is coming to the nation of Israel, bringing a national hope that the nation of Israel had been awaiting for generations. And so while that will have implications for individuals, and it will have a therapeutic implication, that's not the way into it, and that's not the ultimate, the first way to understand it. So Israel was in that exact circumstance that I outlined before. Israel was God's special chosen nation. He started them from scratch. He identified with them in a way that he did not identify with any other nation. They were his people, and he was their God. But their rebellion had cast them into destruction. And so they were under the occupying force of Rome at this time when Jesus came. They were awaiting a national leader. They were awaiting this kingdom that had been promised to them to come into effect. And they would have heard this with the ancient prophecies in mind that they had been taught since they were kids, that someone is coming who's going to lead us to where we can be God's nation again and forever. Isaiah 61 in particular, I'm not going to read it, but Isaiah 61 prophesied and points ahead to a time when the poor or afflicted are going to hear good news. The brokenhearted are going to be bound up. Captives are going to be liberated. 
It'll be the year of the Lord's favor, of his blessing. And specifically, it'll be a time of comfort for those who mourn. But it would be mourning of their national rebellion and consequences against God. So they would have understood it this way, in light of their place in the upcoming kingdom of heaven. And that's how we should understand it also. The kingdom of heaven is both already and not yet. It's already begun. It's already here in the sense that every Christian is living under Jesus' reign and rule right now, wherever they are. If they're in the United States of America, if they're in Canada, if they're in uh, China, if they're in Africa, wherever they are, the kingdom of heaven is already here. It's already begun, but it's not yet. It's not yet fully in place, and it won't be until Jesus returns and fully establishes his reign and rule. Every Christian is a citizen living under King Jesus, awaiting his return. And in the meantime, we are experiencing a life of both mourning and comfort. Because the restoration of God's nation that we are now included in because of Jesus Christ has begun, but it's not yet complete. So we've got one foot in the mourning of the destroyed fallenness of this world and one foot in the comfort of the coming kingdom of God. And our lives will always be a marbled mixture of both. So with all that in mind, I think we're ready to look at the next beatitude, verse 4. Last week we looked at verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's those who recognize their spiritual need, who are granted citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, not those who are self-righteous and not those who are self-affirmed and believe that they don't need any help. It's those who recognize their need for spiritual rescue who enter the kingdom of heaven. This week we'll look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the word mourn there means just what you would think. It can mean to weep. It can mean to grieve. It can have both the idea of the feeling and the action of mourning. And everybody here has experienced some sense of mourning before, so you, you know generally what it's talking about. The people who heard Jesus say this would be thinking that Jesus was talking about the national mourning that they had all experienced for generations, awaiting restoration as a nation. They would have thought that for themselves, as part of the nation, they would have thought that at large for something bigger than themselves. Now, the New Testament mentions mourning and comfort in a couple of different contexts. Now, I want to share, share those with you, but I really want you to be standing in this understanding of this, not just as an individual therapeutic comfort for your specific mourning, but larger scale, the large scale comfort that Jesus is bringing back by reestablishing his kingdom. Now, that will have implications for the specific types of mourning you'll encounter in your life. And the Bible mentions three in particular that I'll highlight. The first one is death itself. When we think of mourning, that's usually the first topic we think of, is death itself. That's probably the deepest cause of mourning that we experience in this world. I'm going to read to you 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Actually, more than just verse 13. Starting at verse 13. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 gives an indication how this comfort of the kingdom of heaven works itself out when we mourn that aspect of our fallenness in this world of death. He writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I read that to you to point out that as Christians, with one foot in the morning of this fallen world and one foot in the comfort of the coming kingdom, that's how we process the morning of death itself. We do mourn it. We do grieve it. I think some people think that Christians will not even acknowledge that the loss of a loved one hurts. But that's not true. Christian funerals are not only a celebration of the life of the person who passed. It is also an expression of mourning and grief. What's different about Christian mourning over death is that it is not without hope. It is in light of the hope of the coming kingdom of heaven, that Jesus is going to return, and there's going to be a resurrection. And those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ will be with him forever. And so, blessed are those who mourn in light of that hope. They shall receive comfort. The next form of mourning the Bible highlights in the New Testament would be just suffering in general. I want to share with you Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. Again, we encounter this idea that Christians ought to be walking around with a smile on their face like crazy people all the time. But sometimes in this fallen, broken down world, there is suffering and it is hard. But we process that in light of the coming comfort of the kingdom. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there again, the Christian processes the grief of suffering in this present fallen world in light of the hope of what Jesus is bringing about in the kingdom. And then finally, probably the most prominent theme in the New Testament in regard to mourning and comfort 
is mourning over our sin. I'm going to read to you James chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And if you'll follow James' line of thinking, you'll see that it parallels pretty closely the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. James writes in verse 1 of James chapter 4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over us, over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the clearest way that this beatitude works itself out in our response to sin, both within ourselves and when we see it around us and in this world. Christians are those who see sin for what it is. It is the very rebellion against God that cast us into this broken place in the first place. Sin is what defiles and destroys humanity in their relationship with God and just who they are. And so Christians, when they see sin within themselves, they respond with sensitivity and they respond with grief and they respond with mourning. And it's that sense of mourning that fuels them to repent and confess and to receive forgiveness and mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. And when Christians look around and they see sin out in the world, they see it on the news and in entertainment and among their friends and within their families, they mourn and they grieve and they're sensitive to it. They hate how it destroys people. And they long for King Jesus to come and make it right. And they long for more individuals to receive Jesus' pardon and citizenship in the kingdom. They long to see individuals made right. They hate sin. They don't find it entertaining. And they don't smugly compare themselves to those who are tangled up in sin because they know that's where they are, apart from Jesus' mercy and grace. Now, all this, the Bible's teaching about blessed are those who mourn, all of that is contrary to the world's message, which is just distract yourself from it. Don't feel bad about anything. You should feel good all the time, and when the, if you feel bad, distract yourself from it. Entertainment is the key. Entertain yourself to where you won't feel those feelings. Medicate them away. Pile up lesser comforts. And if you can't, then complain. Get on Facebook and complain about it. But Jesus' message is, no, do mourn. There is reason to mourn in this fallen world. This is a hard, damaged, messed up world. And so there is reason for mourning and grief. 
very often don't run from it. Christians are those who can look these reasons for mourning and grief right square in the eyes, unflinchingly, because we have the corresponding hope that Jesus is making it right through the kingdom of heaven and will fully make it right when he returns. In Luke, it says that there are many who laugh now but will weep then when the king returns. But there are many who are weeping now who will laugh then when the king returns. And that's really a good test to know if your comfort is founded in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, in your faith and allegiance to him. When he returns, when he returns, will you find that your laughter is turned to weeping or will you find that your weeping is turned to laughter? Now, does this mean that Christians should walk around being miserable all the time? No, absolutely not. If I seem miserable to you right now, it's just because I'm feeling very tired this morning. (laughs) I'm not miserable. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. But that is a deep-down joy that can also deal with mourning and grief. It is not a happy, clappy, candy joy that has to pretend that everything is okay and plaster a fake smile on its face. It is a joy that can look right in the square, square in the eyes of the pain and suffering of this fallen world because it's a joy founded in hope in Jesus Christ. So we as Christians, we can express mourning and grief. So if, if you were one who thought that if I'm a mature Christian, I should never have any problems, and if I do, I should never express that I have any problems, and if I do express that I have any problems, I shouldn't do it in church because these, this is the fellowship of those who are above suffering and mourning. That's not the case at all. You can, you can say ouch when you stub your toe on the nightstand in the morning. And you can say ouch when you lose your job or you don't know what the future holds or you are experiencing Uh, deep concern over a loved one who's tangled up in sin, or you lose a loved one yourself, or you receive a uh, terrible diagnosis from the doctor, grief and mourning are appropriate in those occasions. We should mourn when we see the fallenness of this world. When we see it in ourselves, when we see it in our loved ones, when we see it on the TV. But we need to remember where to turn in our mourning. That's what makes it different for us. We know where to look during those times of mourning. We look to King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. We know where to point others in their times of mourning to King Jesus and the coming kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word to meditate on together this morning. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ and your mercy and your grace because we know that we all are rebels. We all turn away from you with all of our might when left to ourselves. Thank you for providing a way for us to be forgiven and pardoned, made right with you, adopted, granted citizenship in your kingdom. I pray for those among us here. Lord, Would you prompt in each of us individually any next steps we need to take? Steps of confession and repentance so that we can receive for the first time this grace and mercy through Jesus, that we can be part of his kingdom. Uh, For any Christians here who are weighed down with mourning and grief for various reasons, 
May they find comfort in Jesus Christ. May they find comfort now and in the hope of the full comfort to be brought when Jesus returns. We submit ourselves to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.